Welcome to On the Job with Porak, your go-to place for public safety and officer rights, giving you the news you need to know and discussing the issues that matter. Welcome to On the Job with Porak, and our special podcast today is about AB 931. This is the one bill that will change uh, reasonable, the reasonable standard we use, to uh, necessary. Um, We recently have the latest version from June 7th. Um, They're trying to modify it and make it palatable uh, to some of the legislatures at the Capitol. Unfortunately, uh, they've just put lipstick on a pig, as we proverbially will say. Um, There's been a lot of talk about making use of force necessary. And if you actually read this legislation, um, pretty much if you're an officer responding to a call and there may be a potential for use of force, uh, maybe one of those situations where you just not show up until it's over uh, to protect yourself. Um, I know that uh, is probably shocks the conscience for all of us in law enforcement because that's not what we signed up to do. We signed up to be proactive and to keep the community safe But we also didn't sign up to be killed in the line of duty. And unfortunately, the legislation, the way it's currently written, is only going to jeopardize the safety of officers and also the safety of the community that we have sworn to serve. What do you think, Brent? This is a tough bill to to talk about because it's changing. But it's also uh, difficult to talk in a sense that We have a group of legislatures in the ACLU who believe that they and what they've written is far superior to what the the nine Supreme Court justices of the United States came to a conclusion in 1989 with Graham v. Connor. Well, it also defies common sense, right? I mean, you're going to take this piece of legislation, you're going to implement it, uh, presumably, and hopefully not, but assuming that they do implement it, you've got to train, what, 100,000 cops in California how to uh, consider situations differently against all the training that you may have had over the course of a 29- or 30-year career or a six-month academy. It just doesn't make sense to me uh, that this is something that that our our legislature, with no background or understanding about really what we do, and certainly not the authors having had the opportunity to go out there and see what we do, trying to apply what this would do to what our members have to actually deal with. It just, you're, you're an officer out there. I'm an officer out there. Uh, you know how, it would, how we would react to it. You want to go home alive. You want to go home and see your family. And the last thing you want to be thinking of is, well, is this necessary or is it reasonable? Am I going to be able to justify in six months, 24 hours, three years in a civil trial, whether or not it was reasonable or necessary to do this. We do a tough job. The job that we do requires a certain level of professionalism and decision-making and uh, common sense. This is not common sense. This is just another anchor that I think you're throwing uh, around the neck of an officer and potentially jeopardizing their, their life and the life of the officers that are with them out there. But we're being told that this is working in Chicago and Baltimore. I mean, those are the cities that are being uh, shown as successes of uh, this change throughout the United States. Um, you know, my thoughts on that are is, as you look at Chicago, uh, I just posted on Twitter, 
about how they had uh, three homicides and um, eight people wounded in three hours. Um, you know, that city is overburdened with the amount of homicides that are happening. And uh, I know Baltimore is experiencing a similar situation. I can tell you from my personal experiences and all the friends that I have in law enforcement, there's no single police officer that suits up to get ready to go for a shift to go out there and want to shoot and kill somebody. I just don't see that happening or people wanting to do that. No, the, the officers I've talked to, and like you, have gone out on many critical incidents. You talk to the involved officers, and it was the last thing that they wanted to do. They, they talk about uh, a process they go through by which they tried every means necessary, and lethal force was the last uh, result, and unfortunately they had to deploy it. I don't think, think it's uh, hypocritical uh, of, our, of our legislature uh, to impose something like this. You mentioned Baltimore, Chicago. Um, do we not always come out and say we uh, that policing is different in different cities and now we're trying to apply a standard that, yeah, it may have worked there and it may have worked for those officers and, and the policing that's done in Baltimore or Chicago. But this is California, and I think we have to be flexible and uh, be able to adapt to what the profession calls for in this state. And I think we do it a lot better than a lot of other states, uh, if not the best. And I just don't see this as helping us do our jobs more safely or easier. I see it being just a hindrance to what we do on a daily basis. And also, like I had talked about a little bit earlier about Graham v. Connor, I mean, clearly the Supreme Court stated that you need to judge an officer's action at the time that he used the force versus the totality of the circumstances. And I know the Police Executive Research Forum is looking into the totality of the circumstances and, you know, what that looks like. Um, You know, it's great to sit on a Monday and the months, the weeks, the years that go by after an officer-involved shooting, analyzing every second that that officer did in regards to that incident to determine whether they made the right choice or not. Um, As you know, as well as I know, uh, when it comes to use of force issues and incidents like that, things escalate very rapidly. And I know uh, Dr. Weber, Assemblymember Weber, had stated on a recent uh, podcast that, uh, you know, these, these decisions aren't made in split seconds. Well, I'm here to tell you that they are made in split seconds. Officers are trying to de-escalate the situation. I worked 10 years in patrol. I've de-escalated thousands of situations and never had to use force in those types of circumstances. So these officers that are making these decisions, are it's a very fluid situation. And an incident that could be completely code four, everything's cool, could immediately turn into a shooting in a flash. And you also have to realize that um, there's a lot of changes that go on with other people participating in the incident that could escalate it or de-escalate it at a moment's notice. Yeah, you're right. I mean, these these things, you, you have general guidelines on how to handle barricaded subjects, armed subjects, felony traffic stops, but they're just guidelines because we don't know what that criminal uh, or subject is going to do. And a lot of times uh, they're affected by different um, different outside influences narcotics, under the influence of alcohol, uh, the mental health crisis. Um, We deal with a lot of different 
things out there. And then we have to apply that to our training and apply it to what we know and what we see at the time of the incident and what that person's doing. And even still, you don't always get it right. Um, but I'd like to think in the uh, policing I've seen in California, the videos that, that have made their way to the media, the officers acted with the information that they had. They acted reasonably and they acted justly. And unfortunately, sometimes I think um, policing's a dirty, uh, dirty business, and the public I don't know is ready to see exactly what we have to deal with when we encounter these situations. And I know they they've been talking about that. There's not a checklist of what officers need to do to de-escalate a situation before deadly force is authorized, but. If you look at what they wrote in here, reasonable alternatives, uh, you know, threats, you know, the threat posed to the officer, they want you to use every de-escalation tactic uh, possible before the use of deadly force. Um, But, you know, if an incident in a flash goes from a peaceful situation to where you're having to use deadly force, is there an expectation now that I need to warn that person that I will shoot them if they continue um, and what am I supposed to fire after I've been fired upon? It, it almost sounds like they want us to be the victims of an assault or a, a shooting before we can do anything proactive to, uh, to address the situation. And that's why I really brought up the comment about, do we just wait till the incident's over, call us to take the report? You know, the, the real question we should ask them is, is, do you want police to do any enforcement? If you don't, then let's start funding the police station so we can sit in there. And then when we get the radio call, we'll just go respond and, and write the paper. You know, it's one of those things where um, we really need to, uh, you know, focus on having that type of discussion. Um, you know, we all have served in a variety of communities. And one of the things I always hear in some of the communities that I go to is, is there's not enough police officers. And we need to get into those communities so everybody feels safe, uh, that they can walk down the street and not have to worry about it being assaulted or mugged. Um, I think there are other ways to address the issues that they are trying to pose. Um, But one of the first and foremost things I think they need to uh, uh, address is making sure that post or peace officer standards and training uh, is fully funded to provide all of the training that they all talk about. Um, fortunately, in the budget, the money was brought back up to last year's funding levels for post. But the reality is we need to figure out a way to fund post so it gets 100% of the money that they need to make sure that all the peace officers and public safety officers in the state of California get the training that our elected officials want. And I know de-escalation is the big key word of the year uh, for uh, people running for office. But if that is what is a true priority for these individuals, then they will fund it. If they are not funding it, then it's not a true priority, at least in my book. Correct. I mean, you know, this, <laughs> these things don't just happen for free. Uh, you have to uh, pay and train uh, the folks that we're sending out there into our communities uh, well, and you have to compensate them appropriately. And if you don't have the money to do that, you can only expect the police departments to do or the cities and counties to do so much um, before they come down to the base core services, which is respond to 911 calls and handle uh, the job. Absolutely. 
And this uh, this train wreck goes to the uh, Senate Public Safety hearing next Tuesday. And uh, I've heard the ACLU will be busing people from around the California to protest and make sure that those elected officials that sit on that public safety vote for AB 931. Well, I'm here to tell you that Porak's on the job, and we will fight this to the bitter end because we do not believe that this is the right piece of legislation for this state. This is a reactionary piece of legislation. It wasn't well thought out, contrary to what we've been told, and we weren't at the table when this thing was crafted. And we're the professionals. We're the one working the street, and we should have a seat at the table because right now all I feel like I'm on the menu. So the next uh, podcast will be shortly after that. And thanks for listening. That's it for this episode. Make sure you tune in next time as we discuss the issues that matter. 